Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. Uh, what's today? Thursday. Sorry, had a few days off, had some Christmas, holiday, family stuff going on, but here we are, back recording. I'm in a new location, still in the Reno-Tahoe area, but been doing a lot of moving lately, so it's always good, I guess, and uh, I want to talk about a few things today. I want to talk about Zelensky coming to Washington, Belarus inching towards a possible invasion of the Ukraine from the or of Ukraine from the north. I want to talk about some kind of inner fighting between Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, two of the great thinkers of the GOP. But first, I just want to talk about some winter madness and this potential bomb cyclone that we're going to see coming through pretty much the middle of the country. So I've been reading that the middle of the country may be experiencing the storm of a century, or at least some of the coldest temperatures seen in almost 50 years. And I've been seeing temperatures around the country, especially right now in Montana, Wyoming, Washington, and holy crap, they look miserable. And, you know, I mean, living in Chicago, I've seen cold weather, but these just make Chicago look like a tropical resort town right now. And here in in Nevada, where I'm at, I believe it's like 38 degrees, 37 degrees, And, I mean, it is literally, like, 80 degrees warmer here than in some places I'm going to talk about. And I'm not a weather expert, but from my understanding, the storm that we're going to see over the next week, starting kind of right now in the western middle of the country, moving towards the Midwest and the Great Plains, is expected to become a bomb cyclone Thursday evening into Friday, so tonight. And it's going to be reaching pressure that's equivalent of a Category 2 hurricane as it moves into the Great Great Lakes and... Again, I'm not an expert on that, but I guess that means it will have the pressure system of a hurricane, high winds, all that fun. I actually, oh man, it must have been maybe on Monday, I think it was, I received an email from my landlord in Chicago, and it was about prepping for cold temperatures over the weekend. Like, I'm not in Chicago right now, but there was advice about, you know, putting down your storm windows, making sure your heat's on. Like, sounds like it could be a pretty big issue. There's also issues of like, flooding occurring in rivers and then ice dams causing hydropolic situations or something. So yeah, I mean, it's going to be entertaining. I'm also glad that I'm not traveling this week. (laughs) I'm not flying this week because at least as of now, 1,700 flights have been canceled so far and that's probably going to get much worse. Of course, great timing. Christmas is on Sunday and Yeah, if you're trying to go somewhere, I would probably say don't do it, especially if it's in that part of the country. Maybe now's a good time to go to like Turks and Caicos or the Bahamas or something. Probably a little bit too late for that, but I just wanted to paint a picture though real quick of some of the intense weather we are currently seeing in parts of the country. This morning I woke up and saw that Casper, Wyoming set a record low of negative 42 degrees Thursday morning. Oh God. And the old temperature record was 41 degrees in 1990, so new record there. Also, there's a record low temperature of negative 34 degrees in Bozeman, which breaks the previous record of negative 31 back in 1993. Also in Pullman, Washington, they have a record low of negative 20 degrees. And the previous record was negative 11 in 1990. So, oh geez, we are seeing temperatures that are just insane. I think it was also in northern Idaho. Yeah, I think it was northern Idaho. I saw that it was like negative 56 or 58, one of the two. So really, there's not much you're going to be able to do if you're in these places. I mean, I don't even know if you can keep the house warm at that point. And I guess in a to kind of link this back to politics a little bit, or at least, you know, 
inter- I mean, domestic dynamics, one would have to be somewhat worried about if we see more storms like this, like how do you protect infrastructure and people and livestock? Like a country is just never really prepared for this type of cold, right? And so I think we do need to have conversations about extreme weather and what could be next because this is the storm of a century and maybe we won't see another one. But if we do, it could be problematic. And so, yeah, I hope people stay inside. I also hope that businesses let people stay home because obviously going out into this is dangerous. I hope we get over the greed of the holidays and kind of let people take off the work because what's the point of going out in that? It's going to probably shut a lot of things down. So we're going to have to keep that followed closely. But I hope everyone has a good Christmas out there and stays warm somehow. Anyways, uh, getting off of my weather report, I am the resident meteorologist here on Centered from Reality Podcast. Hell, I guess I'm the only person speaking on this, so (laughs) fun times. But next I want to talk about Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, so yesterday. And it was kind of a huge step in U.S.-Ukrainian relations, and also it was just kind of bold for Zelensky to leave Ukraine, make this trip, when obviously there's people in the world that probably want him dead, just a hunch would tell me that. But before I get into some different analyses and thoughts on the visit and the GOP reaction to it, which is all over the place, I should probably start with some background. So Zelensky's visit was mainly kept secret until the last minute for obvious reasons. And a lot of people, myself included, did not even know it was happening until I think it was like Tuesday night when I started seeing articles about it. And this was kind of coming at the moment where you hear reports about Belarus on the northern border of Ukraine, which I'll talk about later. You also hear about the Russians talking about an escalation of troops and winter's coming. So this was kind of an important moment. And CNN notes here that, in quotes, shrouded in secrecy until the last minute, the historic visit was heavy with symbolism, from Zelensky's drab green sweatshirt to President Joe Biden's blue and yellow striped tie to the Ukrainian battle flag unfurled on the House floor. But I think that, I, I, I guess my blunt takeaway would be that I think Zelensky reminded us of the importance of American leadership and the importance of democracies working together, which, as you guys know, I've talked about extensively on this podcast. But I also think that while these two met, there were not a lot of solutions, I guess, that came out of this trip other than, you know, the typical allies supporting Zelensky and the typical Republicans asking questions and Zelensky basically saying he's not really willing for any compromise, which, while I understand it, it's going to be difficult. And... As we know, Russia's talking about sending troops. There's fears of a stalemate definitely growing, which there's been fears of this for a while, but with winter coming, I think those have been really solidified. And as Biden did express continued support for the war effort, and you saw even the Mish McConnells and all those types also you know, express support, it doesn't seem like we're really changing anything. And I know Biden wanted to meet Zelensky to work on ending the war, but During the meeting, Zelensky seemed to make it clear that the war would not be ending soon unless Russia was actually kicked out and went back. He said in quotes here, For me as president, just peace is no compromise. He said, indicating that he doesn't see any road to peace that involves Ukraine giving up territory or sovereignty. This kind of... I mean, it makes sense. Like, I'm not trying to say Zelensky's wrong. But this kind of echoes... I, I I think, I mean, we've seen a lot of Western allies recently that are a little bit concerned about what the long-term plans are because it seems clear that like both sides are not willing to budge. And that's kind of how you get into a stalemate when no one's talking. And 
the United States has obviously been more willing to to express support, but I mean, places like Germany and France, I think, will probably be troubled by this idea of just absolute victory, basically. I also think it was interesting when Zelensky spoke in front of Congress. CNN notes here in quotes, Speaking later to Congress, Zelensky was again up front that he did not believe that American support was enough. And I think this is also an interesting one, because on the surface, it looks like the U.S.-Ukrainian relationship has really been working out quite well for the most part. Obviously, you have the talking heads and the useful idiots who are always, oh, just asking questions, is Putin that bad, and blah, blah, blah. But below the surface, there does seem to be tension, because when Zelensky spoke to Biden and then spoke to Congress, he said, is it enough? Honestly, not really. And this was when he was talking about the artillery that the U.S. has so far provided. And this is a kind of tough conundrum because, excuse me, because we have sent a shit ton of money to Ukraine and a lot of weapons. And it's really hard to quantify what is enough. Like, obviously, the Ukrainians are always going to want more because, you know, their existence is being challenged by Russia and Russia's being a violent oppressor inside of a sovereign country. But then that, like Zelensky's definition of enough might be very different from what our definition of enough is, right? And so it gets really complicated. And I think the discussion about how much aid to send is only going to get worse as the new Congress takes over. And then you have economic issues. Like while inflation's better, it's still higher than it should be. Global prices, gas prices, Everything remains high, and it's harder to sell to the public as we get further down this road. Also, do you remember how, oh, I think it was last week, or maybe even two weeks ago now, but remember how I said that democracies are always more hesitant to get involved in foreign conflicts, but once they do, they're basically better allies and the support's better? This is, you know, because they have to convince their domestic base, their audience, the, the population, to support the cause. And... It seems like some Republicans have convinced their domestic audience, their base, that the cause is not worth it or it's expensive or it's against America first nationalism. And I guess since Zelensky spoke in front of Congress and tried to make this a bipartisan issue, it just seems like it really isn't. And there are a lot of Republican senators and congressmen who have voiced support, especially the more establishment types, but... Some Republicans have refused to attend Zelensky's address to Congress, others sat during the standing ovation, and others have just kind of said that it's antithetical to the America First agenda. And, of course, they claim it's a protest of what they say are unrestrained dollars heading out of the U.S., and to an extent I can understand this, but I think it's just a failed understanding of why Putin must be stopped and why a collapsed Ukraine would embolden the world. And I'll get into a good article later about that issue specifically and Ann Applebaum's thoughts on it. But I think Zelensky's visit to Congress was kind of important because he held a mirror up to us and showed us that places around the world still do believe in the United States and American democracy, even as we are seeing a backslide of democracies around the world, right? And David Frum has a pretty interesting article in The Atlantic that discusses some of the importance of his speech. He says here, Zelensky came to Washington to speak for his nation. He came to Washington to ask for assistance. But above all, he came to Washington to recall Americans to themselves. He came to say, my embattled people believe in you. Embedded in his words of trust was a challenge. If we believe in you, perhaps you can again believe in yourselves. And I think it's an interesting point because, you know, bipartisanship seems to be a thing of the past in some sense in the United States. And... We also are seeing democracies around the world struggle. 
and growth and conspiracies and a liberalism and strongman dynamics. And Frum just kind of discusses in this article how democratic regression is a serious issue. And he writes in here, this mood of democratic regression is what enabled Russian President Vladimir Putin's aggression against Ukraine. He regarded Ukraine as weak and vulnerable and Ukraine's allies as divided and ineffectual. And this cruelty and just a liberalism and somewhat national violence is, I think, why Zelensky did need to come to Washington to, to an extent at least. He needed to come to look at some of these leaders, look some of them in the eyes, and remind them that the assistance to Ukraine is not charity, but it's, you know, an investment. It's an investment in the world. And I think it's hard to see the forest through the trees sometimes, especially when the era of Trumpism has been focused on economic nationalism, America first dynamics, like why care about everyone else, but that's just not how things work, right? And I do think Zelensky meeting with the Mitch McConnells and those types did help them consolidate support, but I think I think instead of just getting weapons, Zelensky wanted to come to Washington to make sure that the rhetorical symbolic support for the movement and for the cause is still there. And staying on support, I do, and I've kind of alluded to this already, I do worry about what the next Congress is going to bring. I'm, I'm less worried about the Senate, but there are some weird wackos in the House that make me a bit concerned, right? And Politico has a good piece that came out, I believe it was yesterday or this morning, that discusses how Republicans in Congress have praised Zelensky, but a lot that are going to be going into leadership positions have really not been willing to commit to aid. And for example, oh God, Matt Gates, one of my least favorite, tweeted, let's see, I have it here. He tweeted out a statement saying in quotes here, President Zelensky should be commended for putting his country first, but American politicians who indulge his requests are unwilling to do the same for ours. Also, another member of the Freedom Caucus, this guy, Warren Davidson, who's a real unique character, said we should be focused on trying to contain the war, not expand the war. And this kind of mess or, or this kind of sends the message we're kind of OK with expanding the war. And I think we should be sending a different message. Not a great man of words. But anyways, others have also expressed trying to give aid without attaching the aid to larger spending bills, which I can understand the sentiment, but I think like, I think these people want the cake and they want to eat it. And it doesn't make much sense what they're actually trying to accomplish here other than just virtue signal to kind of this America first base. And we can't let perfection be the enemy of the good or what should be done. And I also kind of wonder, this is just something kind of ranty, but I always wonder why some of these Republicans that clearly aren't the smartest ones in Congress always seem to wonder why they're like, oh, we should put money towards other things and not do foreign aid to Ukraine. It's like, you know, government's pretty big. You can do multiple things. Like, I, I wonder if they're just trolling or grifting here, or do they really just not understand that government can do many things at once if it's effective? But again, these guys don't want it to be effective either. So that's also part of the problem as well. But it just gets exhausting hearing these people say these same arguments when I understand why you might want to know where the money's going, or maybe you want it detached from large spending bills. But I don't think that's the biggest issue here. And, you know, even going a little bit further, some Republicans actually sat during the speech, which is always lovely, right? Um, there's a good Newsweek article that said seven Republican lawmakers repeatedly remained seated during standing ovations for President Vladimir Zelensky's speech during his address to Congress on Wednesday. Though all did join, um, though all joined standing ovations during the last portions of his speech. So, I mean, I guess they did stand at the end of the day, so like, I guess we can celebrate that. It's not anything too exciting, but 
you could say that they at least at the end of the day did. But I just think it's kind of deplorable. And the people are kind of the usual suspects, I guess you could say. It was Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Andrew Clyde, Diane Harshbarger, Warren Davidson, Michael Cloud, Jim Jordan. Those are the ones that, I mean, a few of them are going into leadership positions. A few of them are rock stars in the party. And they have big sway, and it troubles me again that they're actually rock stars in the party. But these are the ones that really, I think if they could have a say or control, they would not be a fan of sending more aid to Ukraine. Now, the interesting one to me is where's Marjorie Taylor Greene? Because she's someone that I would have thought I think would have been in this, but I was telling someone earlier that I I wonder if she's trying to, I don't know if come off as moderate is the right way because she's not a moderate, but I wonder if she's trying to be a little bit less crazy right now because she wants something from Kevin McCarthy and she wants to have more power inside of the house. And maybe by being less in the news all the time, she can do that because when I didn't see her name on this list, I was somewhat surprised. Now, before we move on, I wanted to kind of go back to why I think the America First people who don't want to give aid to Ukraine are kind of lost and have kind of lost the script, lost the story. And there's a piece by Ann Applebaum that I think is important, and it really adds perspective basically on what could have happened if we didn't help Ukraine. Maybe our buddy Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert should read it, though they won't because they'd probably call the Atlantic a, you know, a woke liberal propaganda machine. But anyways... The article by Applebaum is called The Brutal Alternate World in Which the U.S. Abandoned Ukraine. And it basically talks about how, in quotes here, and bear with me, it's a little long, but I just wanted to start with it. Or no, sorry, the long one's later. Um, But it just basically talks about how Ukrainian resistance and American support have prevented just a wide range of horrors that would probably be more comparable to things we've seen in the 20th century. And she discusses how nothing about Ukraine's success in Russia, against Russia, was inevitable And she just, you know, kind of the elephant in the room is that 10 months ago, we thought Russia was just going to run through Ukraine in six weeks. And, you know, back in those days, I remember watching the news, you know, in in what, February. And we have to remember that during that initial invasion, there were talking heads that questioned whether aid should be given to Ukraine because the war would be over too quickly. Others like Tucker Carlson echoed Russian talking points. Others thought Putin was masculine and strong. Um, I just have to say, I don't think they seem that masculine and strong. They're getting their asses kicked. But anyways, Applebaum writes here in quotes, Had the Russian plan been carried out as it was written, Kiev would have been conquered in just a few days. Zelensky, his wife, and his children would have been murdered by one of the hit squads that roamed the capital city. The Ukrainian state would have been taken over by the collaborators who had already chosen their Kiev apartments. And I think the most troubling point that Applebaum brings up later is that if the Russian plan had have worked, the entire country would have looked like Bukha or Kherson or other territories occupied by Russia. You would, the country would have been full of these concentration camps, torture chambers, makeshift prisons, bodies would have been out, there would have been reports of sexual assault everywhere, and also you would have probably seen the language removed from schools, books would be removed, people would have been trafficked to Russia. It would have been a very dark and troubling scenario that would have looked like the Russians completely trying to erase the idea of Ukraine. And I think people just don't really realize that when they talk about how expensive this war is or what are we doing there or why does Zelensky not want to completely push out Russia? It's because Russia, if, if they could have their way, would have completely tried to erase Ukraine, you know, and Applebaum later in the article also discusses how the world, especially Russia, would be impacted if Russia had have not been so destroyed. 
and if we hadn't have really tried to help Ukraine. And she writes here, this is kind of long too, so bear with me. She writes, Russian soldiers, strengthened by their stunning, stunning victory, would already be on the borders of Poland, setting up new command posts, digging new trenches. NATO would be in chaos. The entire alliance would be forced to spend billions to prepare for the inevitable invasion of Warsaw, Vilnius, or Berlin. Millions of Ukrainian refugees would be living in camps all across Europe. Later, she asked the question, would, um, would, would Russia and Belarus have already annexed Moldova? The Moldovan economy would have collapsed. Also, what would China have done with uh, Taiwan? Would it have invaded? How would the Iranian mullahs react to their ally Russia being emboldened? Venezuela, Zimbabwe, authoritarian regimes around the world would be emboldened, and democracy would be on a permanent backslide. And I think the article just kind of reminds me of the early days and what people were, wor were basically worried Russia was going to accomplish, because... This is the question we must ask the America First movement or the Matt Gates who say we wouldn't do it for ourselves, so why are we helping Ukraine? Because it seems contrary to putting America First, what they are doing, because the world is better off if Putin is not allowed to succeed. And these America First people, I don't seem to think, understand anything about geopolitics. All they want is to, you know, fire up their base. And maybe instead of calling Zelensky and Ukraine welfare queens, maybe they could actually just start having ideas. So you don't want it attached with a giant spending bill? What's the alternative? I think to them, the only alternative is just not doing anything about it. But we'll have to see. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of good and awful analyses coming out of everything <laughs> involving Zelensky's visit. Hopefully he makes it back safely. But lastly, before we're out of here today, kind of doing a mainly Russia, Ukraine, Belarus focused episode today. I, I want to move away from the geopolitics of the war and get closer back to where everything's happening and look at some new reports that could indicate that Belarus may be looking towards an invasion from the north of Ukraine, right? Bel Belarus is north of Ukraine. Would be interesting to see. And well, not, not interesting, sorry. Uh, it'd be troubling and could be a new step in the war, a new front, you could say. And Foreign Policy Magazine has a very good article that discusses how signs of an invasion from the north seemed, sorry, how signals and intelligence from the north seem to show that, in, that an invasion could be imminent. And the Foreign Policy article discusses in quotes here, recent satellite images of Belarus show newly carved forest roads and the movement of a, so, a slow stream of military equipment to Ukraine's northern border, Many experts take it as a sign that Belarus is likely to be the next front in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The arrival of new equipment, together with a recent counter-terror operation and snap in inspection of troops organized by the Belarusian military, has made the Ukrainian government worried that a new offensive could be launched from the north early next year. Now, I've heard also people say that it's not really written in stone yet. They might not invade, but it's just when you see this amount of people at the border... I think it was about a year ago when we saw Ukraine, I mean, Russian troops really building up on the Ukrainian border and people were like, oh, it's probably just an exercise or whatnot. But typically, typically when you see these type of events happening, it's never, never a great, great sign to say the least. Now, I think these revelations are somewhat interesting to me because even though Belarus, which is considered Europe's last dictatorship, is a close ally of Russia, I keep reading that its leader, Alexander Lukashenko, has really been reluctant to send troops to Ukraine because he's having a lot of issues back home. You know, there were protests in 2020. He pretty much stole an election from the opposition and she went into exile. 
and people are pissed off, and especially the younger generations are pissed off, and sending troops to go die in Ukraine, I don't think would help, and also, he kind of needs the troops back home to keep people from being free, right, you need to suppress opposition, so I don't really know what his end goal is here, I mean, obviously, if we saw some sort of new Russian super state, Belarus would definitely be part of it, but it does seem like things are changing a little bit, because I saw that Putin actually visited Lukashenko outside Minsk a couple days ago. Now, side note, Putin does not look good. He has he looks even puffier and kind of just stale. Like, I don't even know how else to really describe it. But he does not look good, and they were meeting. Putin made a trip over there. Like, So clearly they're working on brewing something up. Now, I still don't have significant fears that this would change much. It could make the war more complicated. Because I've also seen that Belarusians are looking at putting installments closer to the Polish border. It could make things quite a problem. But at the same time, Belarus is not exactly like the cream of the crop for the Russians here. I mean, they've already been involved in some of these military operations, so nothing would be too new here. Now, I've seen other reports that have more troubling things, I guess you could say. Where, like, I saw one here. I have it, um, have it up. Let me pull that up really fast. Sorry. Um, where is it? Oh, yeah. Putin says Russia is training Belarusian pilots to fly jets capable of carrying a special warhead. Now, I saw that. That's a little bit troubling. Obviously, they're very close to the Ukrainian border, so that would not be good. But I just think as of now, we can't overreact too much to seeing that Belarus is getting involved just because inching towards an invasion is different than actually helping helping turn the tide here. But as winter comes, it's never good news. So we're going to have to just keep kind of following that. And, uh, I mean, we just need to keep sending aid as well. And that's about all I can really say on that. We're going to keep the episode a little bit shorter today. Uh, so stay warm if you're in the Midwest. Pretty much stay warm if you're anywhere. There's going to be one more episode tomorrow, then going to be off for the weekend with Christmas and everything, and then hopefully back next week. So, as always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, whatever else I've missed, Apple Podcasts, and uh, take care, and I'll be back tomorrow. Peace.